Welcome to the track, I'm Steve Clark. Later I'll be talking to the renowned motoring artist Michael Turner about his work and his new book, The Michael Turner Collection. To start, we sadly lost Sir Sterling Moss in April last year, and the journalist and author Simon Taylor, a personal friend, gives us his thoughts about the great man. I first saw him race on Easter Saturday, 1952, uh, when I was seven years old. Um, he won the Formula 3 race in his Kieft with pretty total confidence and uh, ease. Um, and I suppose it's fair to say that from that day he became my hero. And although I didn't go to that many motor races, I followed Sterling's career, I watched him race, I read about him in the magazines, and he was my absolute hero. And so when I wrote something in the magazine, I can't remember at this stage whether he actually liked it or he was criticising it, but whichever it was, he wrote to me. And that made me understand that here was a man who was a world famous personality who had been at his height in his motor racing career, let's face it, the best in the world. And um, nevertheless, there was absolutely no ego. There was no arrogance. There was no false modesty. Sterling knew how good he was, but he didn't make a big deal of it. The thing that one remembers about Sterling, his friendliness, his approachable nature, um, and how easy he was with, with his fame. I remember walking uh, down Shepherd Street in Mayfair, near where he lived. One evening, we were going to a restaurant, and a couple of blokes, as they passed, said, Good heavens, look, that's Sterling Moss. And Sterling looked around and said, Where? Where? <laughs> He was a lovely man, and uh, he, since we're talking now about his character, it's an old-fashioned term, but he was a gentleman. He had very good manners. He was a good-mannered person. So he would always answer a letter. He would always say good morning, shake your hand. Even if he didn't know you from Adam, he would be courteous and polite. To be fair, Sterling was not judgmental. I mean, Sterling wouldn't have turned up to a press conference barefoot. Um, he wouldn't, um, although he loved the ladies, what he always referred to as crumpet, um, he probably would leave the crumpet alone the night before the race. Um, he wasn't a drinker when he was racing, um, although, you know, in his retirement, he was quite happy to share a bottle of wine over a good dinner. Um, his approach would never have been the same as James Hunt's, but he accepted that there were different ca characters, there were different people. It's not his way, but it was James Hunt's way. It worked for James Hunt. And he, he wasn't kind of overcritical. Um, I mean, in many ways, Jackie Stewart was very different from mm. Sterling Moss. They were both very professional. They were both absolutely meticulous about how they did their job. But there was a sort of um, sportsman-like element of Sterling, which really belonged to the 1950s. And this isn't a criticism of Jackie Stewart. He was racing at a different time. But in so many ways, Sterling regarded racing, however serious it was, as 
something in which you have to behave mm. with sportsmanlike courtesy. The best example that one can give of that is, we all know Sterling is said to be the best driver never to win the world championship, which is a rather annoying mm. um, uh, title to give him. He, he would sort of laugh and shrug it off. Uh, he had a little joke about it. He said, well, at least that makes me different from everybody else. All those other buggers, boy. But um, having, I mean, I think it's right to say off the top of my head, he finished second or third in the World Championship for the last five years of his Formula One career. Um, and the only real reason why he didn't win the World Championship at least twice is because his cars weren't always reliable. In fact, Enzo Ferrari made this famous comment because he was trying to get Sterling to drive for him. And Sterling kept saying, well, there's this British car called a Van Wall and it's British and I'd rather drive that. Or there's this British team, Rob Walker, I'm gonna go with them. And Enzo Ferrari said, if Sterling Moss had driven with his head rather than his heart, he would have been world champion many times. And in 1958, he and Mike Hawthorne, who was the Ferrari team leader, were battling for the championship. Moss led almost every race. I think he led seven of the 10 rounds. Um, but his car broke several times. I think he won three of the races, but broke down in four of the others or the other way around. Hawthorne got the championship by one point. However, at the Portuguese Grand Prix, Moss in the van wall, on his slowing down lap, he came across Mike Hawthorne, who'd been in second place, on the pavement stationary backwards, going up a hill, because Hawthorne had lost it and spun off onto the pavement. And Moss slowed down and made great gestures at him, saying, get the car rolling down the hill and jump in it, you can get going again. So Hawthorne rolled the car down the hill, jumped into the cockpit, bump started it, got the car going, turned back onto the track, carried on, got his second place, got his six points. Whereupon the organisers disqualified him, saying that he had travelled in the reverse direction of the track and that was against the rules. Sterling, when he heard this, remember this was his closest rival for the world championship he said to the organizers you can't quite disqualify him i saw him and he went back he went the wrong way down the pavement not down the track so you can't disqualify him it's absolutely outrageous well because he was sterling moss and the portuguese organizers were pretty much in awe of him they accepted sterling's uh, argument and mike hawthorne was reinstated in second place. If it hadn't been for that sportsman-like gesture, Moss would have been world champion that year. He had the accident on Easter Monday, 1962. He was in a coma for six weeks. Mm -hmm. Anybody less resilient and less determined would have died. And then he went back to Goodwood, did a private test session. And during that private test session, remember he'd had the most terrible head injury. Um, he did lap the same sort of time as he'd been doing before the accident, Ryan Goodwood. 
But the problem was, he said when he got out of the car, this is no good. Because before, I could do the whole thing almost subliminally. It was almost unconscious driving absolutely on the edge and being as quick as it was possible to be. Whereas now, I'm having to think about it. And that's no good. So I'm going to retire. But to be honest, what Sterling decided when he was lying in bed, getting over his injuries, he thought, well, if I'm not going to um, carry on racing, I mean, I'm 32, 33 years old. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. What I'm going to have to do is become somebody who will be a personality. I'll be somebody who will be able to use my motor racing career as a springboard to do all sorts of other things. Mm -hmm. Let's think his motor racing career was about 15 years. Yeah, sure. 500cc cars in 1948. So 15 years racing. And then six, uh, wait a minute, let me get my maths right. 58 years, that's right, as a retired racing driver. Yeah. And yes, as we all know, still, I mean, almost up to the end, policemen who stopped you, uh, for speeding, would say, who do you think you are, Sterling Moss? In fact, it did happen to Sterling once, he claimed. Uh, he was in Australia doing something or other. I mean, the man had the most crowded diary you could possibly imagine. And it was only because Susie, his beloved wife, organised everything that he was able to fit everything in. And he would whiz to Australia for 36 hours to make some sort of public appearance or something. And he was in Australia, um, fairly off the beaten track. And he was speeding, of course, as he always did. He always went everywhere, absolutely flat out, whether he was on foot or um, dashing across an airport concourse or in a car himself or on his Vespa. He used to whiz around London on, on a motor scooter. Um, anyway, he was stopped for speeding, and the policeman did say, who do you think you are, Sterling Moss? And this was in the wilds of Australia. Of course, the name was known. Who do you think you are, Sterling Moss? And Sterling kind of grinned and said, well, yes, actually, I, I do think I'm Sterling Moss. <laughs> but that, six, that 58 years of endless activity, um, it was partly because he wanted to earn a living, yeah. It was partly because he he couldn't stop. Sterling was never a man to sit down. He um, he had this saying, which he was very proud of, um, which was, motion is tranquility. Motion is tranquility, boy, he'd say. What he meant was that he only felt relaxed when he was rushing about. I would remember Sterling as a gentleman, an enormously entertaining friend, and a man who was much bigger than just his motor racing fame and his motor racing career. In motor racing, but in the country as a whole, I think he leaves an enormous hole.
CC and Art for Art's Sake from their 1976 album How Dare You. Now, of course, as far as I know, this has absolutely no connection with Brooklands at all. However, 10CC did open a studio uh, in that year in Dorking in a former cinema. It was called Strawberry Studios after another studio that they owned in Southport. But what the track does do is bring us nicely to our next item, which is about the renowned artist, uh, Michael Turner. Steve Clark caught up with him earlier this year. Michael, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you, that's very kind. We're here to discuss your new book, The Michael Turner Collection. How did the passion for motorsport and aviation painting start with you? Oh well, the uh, uh, the subject matter, of course, was um, of interest to me when I was even four or five years old as a, a small child with toy cars, and then the war came along, so um, aviation took my attention with the exploits of pilots in the Battle of Britain, for instance. Um, in fact, I remember at primary school, uh, I got a real telling off by the art teacher because I kept drawing Spitfire shooting missiles down and she wanted me to draw square box buildings with windows in and trees. Um, and then, of course, um, uh, after the war, I went to the Isle of Man with my family. Uh, my mother's cousin lived there. And we happened to be there at the same time as the British Empire Trophy, the wow. first running of it after the war. Um, and my my cousin said, well, why don't we go and have a look? Oh, okay. Uh, we we uh, sat uh, on a farm gate next to a, a lane, and uh, then suddenly there was this uh, increasing noise coming from the distance, and then it got louder and louder, and, and a, a racing car, which was an ERA, burst into sight round the corner in front of us, um, the uh, the rear wheels clipped the banking on the exit and the driver raced off into the distance. And um, I just thought it was the most fantastic thing. It just got me straight away. So how did this uh, new book come about, Michael? 
I knew that Jazz Parker was a collector of the cards and had been for many years, uh, but he got in touch with me and he said, look, Michael, um, uh, you've been painting the uh, motorsport, mostly Grand Prix scene for well over 50 years, uh, continuously, every year, a selection of subjects, and um, so I think it, it, it would make a good book. And I was delighted because... Um, uh, to paint something like that for such a long period of time oh. was, I thought, quite unique, really, and it was mm -hmm. nice to think that it would be recorded as a as a complete collection. I guess a forward by Sir Jackie Stewart is a good uh, place to start any motorsport book. How did that come about? <laughs> I asked him. <laughs> well, um, that's fair enough. <laughs> I'd, I'd known Jackie, well, of course, since... Um, I know Jackie since he was uh, driving, of course. Um, I remember his first appearance with DRM at Spa, particularly, where he was outstandingly good as a relative learner. Um, and um, over the years, and so I was really very fortunate in being able to get to know a lot of drivers um, on, a, on a personal basis, and some more so than others. And uh, Jackie particularly... Um, he had paintings from me, uh, commissioned to quite a number of works over the years, and uh, particularly after he'd retired, uh, he lived about five miles away from me, and so we socialised as well, and I felt um, no embarrassment at asking him if he would write That's a forward, right. and um, he very, very uh, cautiously agreed straight away. What a place to start. Um just going back, indeed, you received your very first track pass in the mid-1950s, which allowed you access to each and every Grand Prix circuit in the world, plus the Indy 500 and sports car racing at Le Mans. I was a great fan of Sterling, and you know, I forgot to know him, but um, uh, in 1950, I went to see the um, European Grand Prix with my family, uh, who took me there. Um, and after the race, the getting away from Silverstone in those days by car would have been a nightmare. Yeah. My mother said, why don't we walk, walk across the track, up the track to the paddock and have a look around. All fine. So I went with her to the paddock, and while we were looking around, I uh, came across Sterling's Cooper, with which he, I think, had won the 500cc event. Um, and it had a the horseshoe on the headrest at the back. Uh, and I was looking at that, and a, a gent came up and said, uh, why don't you sit in the car, lad? And I thought, oh, I can't sit in the car. And he, he said, go on, go on, sit in it. It's okay. And I sat in Sterling's Cooper 500 at Silverstone in 1950. <laughs> um, and I was I was quite embarrassed. But I was I took a photograph. And then the chap came back, he said, here, wear his helmet. And he put his helmet on my head. And I was even more embarrassed, and I rather quickly took the helmet off, and then I got out. But my mother's photograph shows me sitting in Sterling's car, and um, and I really look very uh, uncomfortable in that I was embarrassed. Um, and many years later, I, I went to see Sterling about something, and, uh, and I took him the photograph. And he thought it was hilarious. And he said, <laughs> he said, you look as if that's the last place you really want to be. <laughs> embarrassed. 
I'm uh, pretty sure it was my father, Alfred, that um, oh. asked me to sit oh. in the car and give you my helmet to wear, and of course that all tied in. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, that's my, my early memory, particularly in connection with Sterling. <laughs> How have you coped with um, modern designs and interpreting those um, in the way that you have? Attention to detail, um, my obsession to try to record things as historically accurately as I can. Um, so uh, as the cars have changed, um, there's observation goes into it, but largely the collection of reference material. So as I've travelled around a lot, um, I would I, I use photography a lot myself. Mm -hmm. um, uh, a trackside in the paddock, wherever I could get, taking details of cars, um, and so the uh, the evolution was fairly gradual. Uh, unlike with uh, my predecessor uh, Roy Knockholds, who was still painting motorsport up until the 70s, I think, um, where he'd been painting pre-war, and he told me or uh, reams about 1969 i think that um he was no longer really interested in the cars because they started putting the engines in the back <laughs> and you couldn't see the drivers and i thought well he has a point yeah but, um, uh, and i think it showed in his paintings that he had rather lost interest in the subject matter because of that mm. um Fortunately, I, I did start off watching um, pre-war racing cars in the late 40s, of course, but I progressed as as the cars changed or ideas changed, I was able to progress with them. Um, and I suppose you could say a similar thing, I hadn't thought of this, uh, might have happened to me because in 2016, I think... Um, well, it was probably 2017 they introduced the halo. Yeah. That to me was, oh, um, it was a really th an ending in a way because you can't see the driver's helmets even now. No. no. Whereas in, in Roy's days and in my early days, you could see the drivers, their arms floating about, and um, even with their helmets on, you could recognize the driver's the way he held his head, um, mm. all sorts of little idiosyncrasies. And now I think it's so anonymous that um, it, it lacks a certain element that I uh, regret, really, having gone. But I guess, Michael, it's a really probably impossible question to answer, but what do you think was the best year for your collection <laughs> or the standout ones in your mind that you thought, well, that is... I've created something there. Oh, a very difficult one. <laughs> very difficult. I would say the best years, uh, most interesting and involved years for me were the, the 60s and 70s. Um, and uh, as far as favourite, I think one of my favourites actually was the one I think you mentioned, the Jimmy Clark at Sandvoort. Um, yeah. Not the first year, but the 1964 one. Um, an unusual part of the circuit, but um, uh, it, I think, um, to me, it, it contained all the elements that I uh, would have wanted in many ways. Um, and you see Jimmy's face, you see him concentrating and uh, about to run you over. Um, 
but I'm sure there are other ones that I would I would equate equally um, for different reasons. Mm. Uh, so I suppose one thing I would say was that I've never produced something that I felt was totally satisfactory because uh, I think if an artist ever produces something and says, yep, that's the best I can do, they might as well stop. So you've always got to have um, uh, an incentive to go on and try a bit harder. So, it, it, yes, a difficult question, Steve. Mm, but, um, no, that's fine. Um, I think you're right. Um, you said um, earlier on that you stopped producing the series in 2016. What made you make that decision, Michael? Uh, right. Um, I, I, I was 82 in 2016. Uh, so working around a circuit, especially like Monaco, which is up and down hill, is quite hard work. And uh, although I was um, as active as usual, I hope, <clears throat> um, we used to, in the, in the more recent years, um, we used to stay in Beaulieu, and uh, I used to drive in and then go back to the hotel. And uh, I remember going back after practice um, on the Thursday, and I said to Helen, I'm, I'm really finding this quite exhausting, really. Um, but it wasn't only that. It was also the more and more rules and can't-dos and things like that, which um, had been creeping in over several years, um, as opposed to the days where you could just uh, you turned up, you had your credentials, you could walk around pretty well, much as you liked. Um, and um, that was stimulating in itself. So uh, I suppose I was also very used to Monaco, but it was the only one I was then going to. Mm. Uh, I, I just felt um, maybe it was time to give it a miss. And uh, after the race itself, um, I guess also I felt, well, you know, I'm a bit old for this. Everybody else around me was uh, a lot younger. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like a, a bit of a sore thumb, um, but uh, you know I would have still gone on doing it if I had been able to. But the lack of facilities um, was a, a disincentive, shall we say? And uh, that's disappointing. I, I, it's not being grumpy, really, but um, uh, it, uh, motor racing has been a, a large, large part of my life. And it seems such a shame to have to give it up because of um, changing in rules and regs and uh, so on and so on. Thank you, Michael. As ever, it's been a joy to talk to you today. I wish you continued success with the book and hopefully you'll be back with us at Brooklands before too long. Thank you, Thank Michael. Thank you so much. Brooklands News. The Michael Turner Collection is available now from uh, porterpress.co.uk. So Sterling Moss was the first president of the Brooklands members and we'll be holding a very special event on the 23rd of May this year to celebrate his life and his achievements which will feature Simon Taylor uh, amongst many others and uh, a whole array of cars that Sir Sterling actually drove. Of course the museum itself remains closed at the moment uh, we are looking forward to the time when it can reopen, so keep an eye out on the museum website at brooklandsmuseum.com 
for details of uh, any future opening and of course you can become a member by going to the same website thanks for listening 